Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. Today we're talking about uh, the book of Job, which is one of my, it's become one of my favorite books, but I have to say the first time I read it, I was pretty horrified, and it actually kind of challenged my faith in God a lot, because God behaves very strangely in this story, uh, but I wanted to, as a, by way of introduction, talk really quickly about this category of writing in the Bible that is often called wisdom literature. We're kind of entering into a new uh, type of writing in the Bible that we haven't seen thus far as we've gone through, and I think in understanding a little bit about what that type of writing meant and what it looked like we can have a better understanding of what we're meant to find in the book of Job. So this category of wisdom literature, it's a pretty broad category. It includes a lot of different types of writing. Uh, In the Bible, it refers to Job, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, Song of Songs. Even some of the Psalms are considered wisdom Psalms. And basically what that means is that the purpose of these writings was to teach Wisdom, So not so much factual knowledge, but truth with a capital T. Um, and it does this um, with, it gives practical and spiritual wisdom. Uh, but one of the key factors of wisdom literature in Israel that makes it different from wisdom literature in other traditions, because uh, the ancient Near East had lots of wisdom writing, not just um, in the Jewish Bible, is that the belief that wisdom can only come one way, and that's through a knowledge of God. So all knowledge has to uh, involve the knowledge of God. I think it's Jeremiah who says, wisdom from people who don't believe in God, what kind of wisdom is that? There isn't really a sense that there can be wisdom achieved without that. Um, The other interesting thing about this type of writing is this willingness to allow for paradox and for contradiction and for things to be sort of wrestling with each other. And we'll definitely see that in Job. And also that uh, this truth with a capital T, this wisdom, is best communicated through poetry. Uh, So this kind of bigger truth needs an artistic form in order to be properly communicated. So all of that wisdom literature um, has a poetic element to it. So those are just a couple of things to just kind of keep in your head as we uh, talk about this story. So the story of Job, uh, you can kind of break it down into five basic pieces. There's the prologue, which sets up the story. Then there's the dialogues where Job has his three friends who come to comfort him and they sort of go back and forth about these big issues. That's where the poetry starts. Then we have this fourth 
um, character, sort of a fourth friend, Elihu, who has a few speeches of his own. Yahweh himself appears. We have his speeches, and then the conclusion of the epilogue. The prologue and the epilogue are not written in poetry, they're in prose. And this part of the story probably existed for hundreds of years before this particular writing. Uh, it was like a folktale that was passed down uh, for hundreds of years. And in fact, this, a version of this story exists even outside of the um, nation of Israel and other forms of um, writing, even in Egypt. The basic story goes, once upon a time in a land far, far away, there lived a man named Job. Job was the richest man in all the land. He had everything. One day, he lost everything. But he stayed faithful to God, and eventually everything was restored to him, and he lived happily ever after. So that's like the basic story that existed before this writing. But that only takes up about three chapters of a 40-plus chapter book. So the author, the poet, who has given us this version of Job, there are 40 chapters of poetry pushed into this story. And in that poetry, we're dealing with some of the biggest questions of human existence. Um, If there is a just God, why is there so much injustice in the world? Um, If God created us, why did he make us to die? Um, What can a human being do in the face of powers beyond their control? All these very big questions are dealt with in the meat of the story, which is in that poetry. So let's take a look at the story a little more closely. So in the prologue, which is just the first two chapters, we're given the setup for this story. So there's a kind of council of gods, it's called, and God is standing there, and there's this character called Hasatan, which is usually translated in current translations, Satan, with a capital S. That's where we get the word Satan from. But our understanding, whatever it might be today, of who Satan is, uh, was not around at the time of this writing. Really what that word means is the accuser. So there's an accuser present. And God says to the accuser, Have you considered my servant Job? He is perfect, upright, and blameless. This uh, statement of God, this declaration of righteousness of Job is essential to understanding the rest of the story. God himself declares Job is blameless. Very important in understanding this. So the accuser makes his accusation. And the accusation is this. Of course Job loves you and does everything he's supposed to. You gave him all this great stuff. He's literally the richest person. He has... Ten children, seven of them are boys, which is A+. Um, He's got a big house, he has tons of servants, he has more livestock than anybody. So he's doing all of this because of what you gave him, not because he actually loves you. And God, against this accusation, defends Job and says, no, you're wrong. Give it your best shot. I know that Job loves me just because of I'm God. And so the accuser goes off, and that's when Job loses everything in succession. He loses his house, (coughs) excuse me, his livestock, all of his servants, and finally all of his children die in one fell swoop. What does Job do? Does he do what the accuser says he was going to do, which is curse God to your face? 
Uh, No, Job famously says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the Lord. So not only does he not curse God, he blesses God in the face of all of that tragedy. And the text tells us, in all of this, Job sinned not. So once again, we're reminded, Job hasn't done anything wrong. Important to understanding the story. So the accuser ends up back in heaven. God says, huh, hey there. Have you considered my servant Job? Once again, he is perfect, blameless, upright. Even after you did all the stuff you said you were going to do. And the accuser says, yeah, 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 but that was all external stuff. If you touched him in his flesh and bone, meaning if you took away his health, he will curse you to your face. And God says, give it your best shot. And so Job is afflicted with a terrible uh, skin disease. It sounds pretty horrific. It's painful. It's, um, it itches terribly. He has to take something to scrape the sores off. It it's, infects him from his head to his toe. And as we, you might remember from some of the writings we read earlier, having a skin disease is a pretty big deal um, in this culture. It's really, you are unclean. You need to be away from everybody. And... At that point, um, Job's wife says to him, you know, are you still going to hold on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Like, what are you even doing here? And Job again says, am I supposed to just take the good from God and not the bad? You know, I'm blessed be God. And so again, he does not sin, it says in the text. Um, So he goes off in mourning and uh, three of his friends come. And for the first seven days, they, they sit shiva, which is uh, still a tradition today where they just sit in silence seven days and seven nights on the ground with Job. But finally, um, Job can't take it anymore after seven days, and he cries out this really powerful lamentation uh, where he says, I, I just wish God would kill me. Things just couldn't get any worse. I wish God would just kill me. And then he says, no, actually, I wish I had never been born. No, actually, I wish I had never even been conceived. He, he, he is in such powerful devastation uh, that he, he wishes that his existence had never even happened. Uh, and at this point, his three comforters, um, his three friends, feel that they must interject and so that's, this is where we get into the, the dialogues, and this is really the, the poetry and a, a large portion of this story. And the three friends get a pretty bad rap because uh, what they're doing is basically telling Job why this is happening to him. You obviously did something to deserve this. Uh, and that's not a very good way to comfort someone who is in distress, but really they're trying to help him. Uh, what they're giving him is traditional, conventional wisdom. So remember, these are wisdom writings, and what these three friends are telling him is not wrong. Uh, They're quoting the Psalms a lot, and they're basically saying, look, this is how it works. Uh, When something bad happens to you, it's because you sinned. Uh, We've seen this right through the whole Bible that we've read thus far. Uh, Whenever something happens, people kind of reflect. They look back at the law, and they say, oh, you know why this is happening? Because... I did this, or this king did this, or our ancestors did this. And so what do you do? You confess, you um, make a sacrifice to God, and then God will restore you. 
And so the friends are really trying to offer Job hope. This can turn around. You just need to admit what you've done wrong. And, uh, you know, by your confession, God is merciful, God is good, God will forgive you. So again, the, the friends aren't necessarily wrong, but they're, they don't know what we know. And also what Job knows, which we've been told in the prologue, Job is blameless. This is not one of those situations. This is something that's happening outside of that traditional understanding. And even in the poetry, uh, it gives us a little bit of a clue as to what's going on. So the poetry of the three friends is pretty traditional. It's almost cliched um, in its style. And then Job's poetry, whenever he responds, is some of the most original, beautiful, eloquent poetry in Hebrew writing. Um, And so there's this difference. There's something kind of like a cliched offering of trying to help someone who is suffering. And then this person who says, uh, this doesn't apply here. This is bigger than what you're kind of presenting to me. Um, Job... He, he does respond to his friends a little bit, um, and he, basically what he says is, yeah, everybody knows what you're saying. Of course I know what you're saying, but I know that what's happening to me is not matching up to anything I could have done. Um, and he really um, addresses most of his speeches not to his friends, but to God. He takes his complaint right to God, and he is... Uh, He's full of lamentation, but he's also really struggling to understand uh, the world. He doesn't talk too much about his own personal suffering. He doesn't really talk about losing his children or his house. He talks about these bigger questions. Um, If God uh, is accusing me of something and punishing me in this huge way, who am I, this little person, that I could defend myself? Uh, It's really unfair And he marvels at the brevity of human life. You know, we're only here for such a little time. And is God up there in heaven with this big magnifying glass looking at every single little tiny thing I do and then sending all this destruction on me? And he feels really um, hurt in the sense of that this relationship with this God he, he has total faith in, he feels like God has become his enemy, that God has judged him unfairly And he can't represent himself. Job uses the language of courtroom a lot in his speeches. Uh, And he says, I wish that God would come down here and make a case against me. Tell me, like, what did I do to deserve this? And I, I know I can't stand up for myself, but I just, I really believe that somewhere in heaven, there is someone who can witness that I don't deserve this, Um, that there is someone up there who would be my advocate, who would speak for me um, in this this trial. So the friends get more and more upset as Job is talking about this. Wait, are you trying to say that God did something unjust? That's not possible. God is not capable of doing something unjust. And you're obviously full of pride uh, and vanity to think that you couldn't have done something to deserve this. Um, No one is perfect. Even the stars in heaven aren't perfect. Uh, So even a little sin, you know, would deserve this terrible punishment. But Job stands strong. And in the end, he gives this thing called, which is often referred to as the oath of clearance. And in that, Job basically makes a negative confession. 
So what he does is he lists every possible sin he can think of and declares that he hasn't done it. There's, you know, coveting another man's wife? Nope, never once did it. And he kind of lists all these things. And finally, the three friends give up. They're just like, okay, he's righteous in his own eyes, and we can't talk him out of it. Uh, And at that point, that's when Elihu shows up. We don't really know where he came from. We didn't know he was sitting there this whole time. You never mentioned him. All of a sudden, there's this uh, fourth character. And for that reason, a lot of people think this section was actually written much later and sort of inserted in here. Um, But this character is much younger than the other three comforters. And he says, um, I kept silent because wisdom comes from age. But then I thought, well, I feel this divine inspiration in me. I feel like I have to call out the, uh, the knowledge that I have about God. And Elihu doesn't really have too much to say in terms of what Job might have done wrong to deserve this. He's a little more concerned with the way Job is dealing with his suffering in this moment, uh, which is to say, you know, he's complaining to God. And Elihu doesn't really think that that's appropriate at all. And he says, you know, it's your pride and your vanity that are keeping God from coming down here and and helping you right now. Um, And he also um, wants to check uh, Job's idea of God being capable of injustice. So again, we have this limitation that's being put on God. Uh, God is not capable of doing something unjust. Um, At that moment, God himself actually shows up. And so then we have our Yahweh speeches. And you know how I said the poetry of Job is superior to the poetry of the three friends? Uh, The poetry that Yahweh speaks is unparalleled. But what Yahweh has to say is a little confusing because he doesn't address directly what has happened to Job. He doesn't say, listen, actually what happened is that Satan made an accusation against you, and I bet him that you wouldn't <laughs> He doesn't give any of that information. What he does is he goes on this incredible journey through all of his creation, and he interrogates Job. Um, you know, are, are you able to tell the waves when to stop on the shore and when to roll back? Uh, do you know how to put the stars in the sky? Um, and he goes through the cosmos... He goes through meteorology, all these different weather uh, formations. He goes through every animal in the world. And he even talks about mythological creatures like Leviathan and the behemoth. Um, And what he's saying is, my wisdom makes these things happen. So you can really read Yahweh's speeches as being very sarcastic. Like, um, are you coming at me with questions? Do you know how to make it rain? Okay. Uh, Then don't even talk to me. But I actually think it's more like, how how are you going to ask me to explain this to you? My wisdom makes a hawk fly. There's there's this difference between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of people. And Job has a very interesting uh, reaction as well, in that he is 100% satisfied from the moment God shows up. Um, he doesn't need to be convinced. He, every time he responds to God, he basically says, yep, yeah, you, I don't even know what I was talking about. You're so right. He repeats what God has said several times. And eventually he repents. Uh, in other words, he turns from mourning. He 
gives up his mourning, and he goes back to life. And, and God also says something about the three friends, which is that they spoke wrongly of him. And my servant Job spoke rightly. And in the end, um, God does restore to Job um, twofold of what he lost, and that's the sort of happy ending. But, but Job is satisfied before that happens, and I think that's really important. So uh, just looking at some big ideas that are presented uh, in this story, um, there's kind of a check on an understanding of the doctrine of retribution, which basically says if you commit a sin, you'll be punished. Um, It's not that it's not true. It's just that what we can do as humans is basically limit God and say, if I do this, you do that. Um, And then if I don't do this, you do that. And in that way, we find ourselves thinking we can control God. And that God is just sort of up there doling out rewards and punishments as if you're clicking a button on a vending machine. Um, It also uh, lets us know that suffering happens for a lot of different reasons and that we can't look at someone's suffering and judge their spiritual condition or their relationship with God based on that. Um, Molly Jane really preached on that wonderfully last week, um, the idea where people say, oh, this tower just fell on all those people. I wonder what they did wrong to deserve that. And Jesus says... um, doesn't really work like that. Yes, um, the good are rewarded and evil is punished, but it's in God's time and God's way. And God is free to do that in his way. And his ways are not our ways. In other words, we're not in control in that way. We can't keep ourselves safe by following all the rules. It's also a little bit of a check on anthropocentrism. So the idea, and this, this is related to that first point, which is the idea that we're in control of things. Um, Elihu says something really interesting where he says, um, you know, God makes it rain. If we're, if we're good, for instance, if we do the right thing, God will make it rain and then we have crops and everything is great. And what Yahweh says in his speech is, I make it rain where no man lives. So in other words, his creation actually extends beyond human beings, that there are things that happen that have nothing to do with us. Um, that are part of his bigger creation. Um, And it also talks about, you know, God's speeches. He describes things that are beautiful and make sense, right? Like morning and evening happening. But then he describes things, uh, one of my favorite parts is he talks about the ostrich and how the ostrich abandons their eggs. And it doesn't make any sense for evolution. It just doesn't make sense. It's a very odd thing. But God's wisdom made that happen too. And so taking into consideration what we consider order and what we consider chaos are both present in God's creation. Um, And it's a little bit, again, it's not so easy for us to pin down. Um, And then I think the most powerful message, you know, I talked about that courtroom metaphor And how Job longs for this witness, for this redeemer, for someone to be his advocate. He doesn't know that God is not the one who has made the accusation against him. It was the accuser. We know this from reading the prologue, which is very important. Um, But actually, God is the one who is his witness, who is his advocate. He is the one who comes and redeems him. And that helps us to understand why Job is satisfied God doesn't give him an intellectual answer to his question, 
but that God is the answer, that God's very presence um, to Job is Job's answer. And Job says, my ear had heard about you, but now I have seen you, and everything is okay. And there's a little bit of a a looking forward um, to to Christ, really, and to um, this time when we have our advocate in heaven. And uh, one of Job's most famous lines, I'll leave you with that, which is, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he will stand on my side and speak for me. Um, So that's all I have. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live, or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week, with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.